Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 194 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we discussed Mary Meeker's 2017 Internet Trends presentation. We recommend both the episode and her presentation as a great way to learn about what's actually happening out on the Internet and make some adjustments in your thinking and your approach to the Internet. In this episode, we, or Tom would say I, decided to revisit and expand on a topic that we made a short flyover on in, a, in an earlier episode. Tom, did you notice what I did there? I did notice that. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be revisiting the topic of drones and what implications the growing use of these devices might have for law practice. In our second segment, we've got another question from one of our listeners. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, drones. Uh, the U.S. Uh, FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, has estimated that uh, 2.2 million drones have been sold as of 2016, and estimating over 7 million sold by 2020. They're now requiring certain types of drones to be registered with the FAA for both commercial and non-commercial use, and expecting that those are going to top over 4 million drones by 2021. Now, Dennis, we covered this uh, last year. I thought we had all we had to say about it. I'm not sure I have more to say about it. I'm going to be the, the curmudgeon, I think think on this episode of the podcast. Uh, so what made you want to revisit this topic? So I was on vacation visiting my family and I was uh, talking to my dad and my brothers and we were up at the family farm where my brother lives and they were talking about all the vehicles they had up there because they restore cars and they have all these great, you know, four wheelers and bulldozers and stuff like that. And they were talking about how they had too many vehicles. And I said, well, you guys should get a drone so that when I come back, we can play with the drone and, you know, overfly the farm and the woods and stuff. And that, that would be really cool. And uh, I couldn't talk them into it, but it, it got me thinking about drones. And I, I started to wonder, like, how many drones are out there? And, and as you said, Tom, there are millions of them out there and expected to, to be even more. And so I started to think about drones and revisiting the topic is uh, just because I wondered if it was an example of a technology that grows at a fairly fast pace. But and steady, but not something that people really notice. And then suddenly it emerges and there are millions of drones out there and they're delivering things and they're taking pictures and they're uh, filming, they're, you know, flying through the fireworks shows and giving you views of that and, you know, being used in halftime shows and all these other things. And all of a sudden they're there and we, we haven't really thought about them. And so it's possible that these drones will have a number of legal issues, um, which we you know typically don't like to focus on, but that the the mere presence of these drones will create some opportunities and some issues for lawyers uh, in the actual practice of law, even though 
at, at first blush, it may seem that, that drones have nothing to do with that at all. So I don't know whether uh, that's convincing to you, Tom, but that sort of got me thinking about drones and, and uh, making it a, a topic of this podcast. Okay, so I'm not convinced. I will say I agree with you that drones are one of those technologies that builds at a fast pace and suddenly there are millions of them. But I would say I would challenge the notion that no one's paid attention to it because it's hardly anywhere that you don't see drones out there somewhere, that there are drones that hover over football games and take pictures, that um, there are drones that um, that have been gotten people in trouble for buzzing airports or doing things like that. The fact that it's in the news all the time now that Amazon or Walmart want to start delivering packages by drone. Um, so I'd argue that it's kind of caught up with us unawares, but, and then I guess the other part that I would challenge here is I think that in terms of the law, uh, I, you know, if you just go and do a Google search for drone law or drone lawyers, you're going to find a lot of stuff out there. I think that the opportunity here is a practice of law, which I'll be interested to see if it turns out a little bit like Y2K lawyers back in the day. I think there's more there for drone lawyers, but that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's the new hot thing is that there are lawyers out there who are willing and ready and able to help you understand what your legal obligations and what your rights are as an owner of a drone. And I think that like any regulated industry, which it's becoming a regulated industry, I think there's definitely a market for lawyers to represent people who own drones and or companies who use drones as a business tool. Where I struggle here is to go much farther beyond the bounds of where we went last time to talk about how it would help lawyers in the practice of law or in delivering services to their clients. And so that's where I'll, I'll throw this back to you and challenge you and say, you know, I get the first part. That's not our podcast. Make this about our podcast. So I, I think that, so here's the pushback, I'll say. So you're right that if, if I do a search on drone law, there's going to be a bunch of stuff out there. But I think that if I do the use of drones in the practice of law on Google, there's not going to be much. And I would say within a few days after this podcast goes live, the number one result will be this podcast. I think it's an area that hasn't we haven't given much. So we're forging about. new territory, is what you're saying. Yeah, and, and I, I think I understand. it's okay. I, I think it's a, when we talked about 3D printing, it's it's sort of a thing saying, hey, here's this new technology. Would it have an impact on the practice of law? And maybe it wouldn't. So here's another perspective, and maybe this will, you'll find this more convincing. I think this gives us another area like 3D printing where we can say, let's apply a framework of the ethical duty of technology competence to this new technology and say, well, if lawyers have a duty of keeping abreast of relevant technology, and there's millions of drones out there with cameras on them, and it might be used in different ways, could it be possible that at least some lawyers would have an ethical duty of competence to keep abreast of drone technology? I think that entirely depends on what the word relevant means. When I typically discuss the duty of technological competence, I don't stop with those words. I don't say the associated with relevant technology. I go a little bit further and I say relevant technology used in providing service to a client. Now, maybe that's my 
going farther. Maybe that's not a an interpretation that I should be, you know, extending there. But my point would be, what does relevant mean in these circumstances? If you're going to practice drone law, clearly, that's definitely a thing. It's clearly relevant that you need to understand how they work, why they do what they do, what the legal issues are around them. You need to understand the whole nine yards. If I am a tax lawyer, I would argue that to prepare my individual client's taxes, I don't have to not understand what a drone is like. To me, that's not relevant. I I would think that in most areas of law, I would not automatically need to have a knowledge of what drones are like. Now, if I'm doing a personal injury case, or if I'm doing, let's say I'm a real estate lawyer and I'm doing eminent domain law, then I probably should keep abreast of the technologies that will help me present my case best to the court. And I think you have an argument there. But I really think it comes down to what relevant means. That's going to mean something different for every lawyer out there. Right. And I think that that's how I'm starting to think of this ethical duty of competence as it applies to technology. And so I go back to 3D printing where we said, you know, for like the work that I do, uh, for example, which is technology contracting, licensing, that sort of thing, I don't really see any use at all for drones. If I'm a real estate lawyer, maybe. If I'm a litigator in certain types of cases, maybe. If if there's going to be photography done by a drone, if there's going to be mapping done by a drone, other things like that, maybe I need to understand what the technology is and how to use it. And so I think that there is going to be something where you say, if the drone is somehow involved in the subject matter of the case, or that it relates to demonstrative or other evidence or proof of evidence, or it, like I said, if it helps in mapping or you know figuring out boundaries, that sort of things where you, you say, if I can be creative, if I say, if I have something that flies and it has a camera in it, what might be the implications? And then probably secondarily, I think, because I don't really see at this point that it's meaningful. But if a drone is something that flies that can grab onto things or hold things, um, does that have some implications for what I'm doing? And I think that, you know, I don't really see drones in the courtroom. I do not see the thing where you say, here's the exhibit. Let's have the drone fly it over to the jury to look at. You know, I I don't see that. So I don't see drones in the courtroom, but I, I can see certain areas, like I said, real estate, maybe some other things where the drone could be part of investigation or evidence or, you know, proving up your case or attacking somebody else's case. That's where I see it could come into play. So I'm going to head down a brief rabbit hole, and then we'll stop talking about the interpretation of comments to model rules. Um, but I sort of view it a little bit differently. And, and you know, unfortunately, this rule hasn't been interpreted yet. Nobody's been brought up on charges or complaints that they violated this duty of technological competence. So we're not going to know this. But I'm going to make the argument here that the duty of technological competence doesn't require you to be aware of every single technology that might help your client in a given situation or to be aware of every single technology that exists that might possibly apply to anything that you do for your client, because I think that that's where we're heading. It sounds like we have to be aware that, oh, by the way, there are devices out there that have cameras, and and because we might represent people who need those cameras, we need to be aware of that. 
I view the duty of technological competence is that if we become aware and if we use the technology, a specific type of technology, in regard to representing our client, we better know how to use that technology. We better understand how it works. I don't see any cases out there saying that lawyers have a duty to know about technology-assisted review for e-discovery. They don't have a duty to understand it or to know it. There's not a, any cases out there that I say, but if they have to use it, if they wind up using it on behalf of their client and they use it poorly, then by gosh, everything is going to happen. So I'm going to, again, I've, I've headed off down a, a rabbit path and we can come back and talk about why drones are going to be great for lawyers. But I just don't think that that's the way they intended to frame the duty of technology competence. Yeah. And I would say in my own approach to technology competence says there has to be an implied reasonable standard. So I, I think that the focus is on what's relevant to you, probably from the client's perspective rather than your own. But I think let's kind of jump over to if a lawyer is interested in this, how might they use drones? And, and I guess the other way I was going to push you on this topic, but I learned your answer before the podcast and which surprised me is like isn't this just another great way that that we can find a rationale to explore some great new technology under the guise of of trying to help our listeners and you might think that for me the answer would be yes because i always want to get a new gadget but i have to say and this is what i told you before no interest in a drone here. Part of it is because I, I lack the motor skills to drive one, and I'm afraid I would lose it or crash it or destroy it or make a fool out of myself with it. But, you know, it's one of those things that I'm not willing to sacrifice myself for our listeners and, and learn more about the drone. So I think, Dennis, it relies on you to go and buy a $35 drone from Amazon and see how well it works. Okay, so I had more fun researching this topic than than anything that we've we've done for a while and talk about going down the rabbit hole and this was we're recording on amazon prime day so it was all i could do not to jump on on amazon and and see if there were any great sales but i i think that time it could be that we're too early on this topic but i think it's a useful one to think about but let's assume that we are a lawyer and either we've figured out some way to make this a relevant technology from our understanding, we figured out some way to make it a business write-off, or we just want to play with it. And let's maybe talk about how somebody might get started into the world of drones. So I was doing this research, and and I realized that you know when when you said you don't have an interest, what interests me is that I have access to to a farm that has like a lot of, of free space that you could actually fly a drone around outside. And it'd be cool. And you'd say, if you have a camera and it streams video to you, it, it would be fun. It's sort of, you can start with something that you can fly inside the house or if, but if I look and say, I'm going to fly a drone in my backyard, it's, I'm just going to get caught in the trees all the time. So I think as I was doing the, uh, the research on this, I, I realized that it is not easy to fly these things, especially the cheap ones. And we were talking about how in some ways like video games and stuff where you're going, oh, I love the, like I, early on, there was some video game that I got, it was a Winter Olympics game. And I just wanted to like do the, the skiing things and the luge and the bobsled. And I could never 
I, I never enjoyed the game because I never got good enough to actually do the skill in the sport. And so so I think there can be a concern on, on the drones. It's difficult to learn to fly them and that they can wreck easily. Um, and and that's what the friends who, who have drones have, have told me. But I think they've improved over the years. And then I, I think there is this notion that there are really good beginner drones with features that make it easier for you to fly that have a more limited range that are more durable and that you can kind of start to practice on those and then determine whether you have an interest and whether you like it and then jump up to a level of of a drone that you may use more outside that you may experience with photography that you actually have some use for and and so i think there is a notion of you know getting what you pay for but there's some some great resources saying that there are, you know, basically, I don't know, I would do the $35 drone based on the research I've done, but I would say like the $90 or $100 starter drone might be an interesting way to go. Well, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but um, still not convinced. And and here's why, is that if, if I'm going to be convinced that drones have a use in the law, Getting a drone myself and going and testing it out is not going to be what does it for me. It's going to be a fun weekend activity, and I'm going to have a great time doing it. But for the current uses that a drone has right now, I'm certainly not going to do it myself. I'm going to hire somebody to do it for me. I mean, if I look at what the current uses, you know, the the FAA and their forecast, they list the top commercial uses of drones. I'm going to kind of wander off here for a second and say that the top commercial uses of drone are for insurance purposes. I think that's very interesting to go in and view damage or other things. Emergency management totally makes sense uh, when there's disasters or things going on. Agriculture, again, monitoring farms and, and that sort of stuff, the crops. Uh, construction, industrial, and utility inspection is number three on the list. Real estate, we've talked about that, is number two. And then aerial photography, far and away, the number one reason. There are a couple of really interesting uh, uses of drones that I'm finding, that I kind of, in my research, found out about. You know, there are some drones that are actually going to start carrying people. I think that's fun. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is developing a series of drones that are going to provide internet coverage in places that don't have good coverage. I think drones for internet coverage would be a brilliant idea for things like disaster areas or in war zones or places where internet coverage like like Mark Zuckerberg is doing is uh, is hard to get to. I think that's a brilliant use to, to have it up there. Lots of wedding videos are using drone these days. Uh, checking inventory in, in warehouses are great. When it comes to, but none of those things am I going to use a drone myself to do this. I'm going to hire somebody if I need to have any of that stuff done. And similarly, if I want to demonstrate the meets and bounds of my client's land um, for a uh, eminent domain case, I'm going to ask somebody with a professional drone with a good camera to go and do that. I'm not going to buy it myself and invest in it, at least not right now. So to that extent, I think we are too early in terms of owning our own equipment that would be capable of doing these things. I personally think we're too early on this topic. Now, does that mean that um, every good lawyer who's gonna who needs that in a real estate practice or some sort of litigation practice is gonna get one ten years from now? I don't know, but it's good that we're having the conversation. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you're kind of convincing me. I mean, not that I needed much convincing on this. That, that it is a little early for this. It's kind of hard to see that lawyers are gonna use it in the actual practice. I mean, I think that if it fits a hobby. You know, interest of yours, photography, you know, 
Lawyers are competitive, so drone racing, of course, or just something that you want to do socially. I think that this could be a great technology outlet. So it is. And maybe we help you come up with some business justification that you can tell your spouse or the IRS as to why you needed to buy that that drone. (laughs) Uh, So I I think we're there. I think there are great resources. Like I said, I I think that there's some really, uh, I found some great reviews and articles really running through like what you get in each price range. And you know what you would use outdoors. What have the best cameras? I mean, the, the resolution on the cameras on on some of these drones is amazing, and it really seems like you get a lot for you know under a thousand dollars. But for a few hundred dollars, it looks like you can have something that would be great. It seems like there's a, been a lot of improvement in the controllers. Um, there's a great feature that some of them have where the drone will come back to home. You know, so that, you know, when you lose control of it, at least we'll come back to you so you don't have to go chase it down. So I think you do a little research. Like I said, I I just sort of see it's a two-step process. You know, buy a a cheap, durable one that you learn to fly on. And if it appeals to you, then bump up a level. Uh, Tom, it doesn't sound like you'll be buying one in the immediate future. So I'll probably have one before you do unless... uh, my great scheme of getting my dad and my brothers to buy one for me that I can go use uh, comes through. But, I look uh, forward to pictures of you standing in a field um, from your farm, pictures from your drone. So send those to me and maybe that will maybe that will be enough to get me going. But let me say, like, while you're kind of giving some good practical tips on, on the equipment itself, let me be the responsible one here and say that, you know, if you're going to do that, before you do that, Go and check out the regulations on the FAA. Go and read the laws of drones and see, you know, what you need to understand and where you can fly a drone, where you can fly it, what are the rules around it, and whether you need to be regulated before you buy, you know, go out and plunk down money for a big, fancy, large drone. Make sure you understand what your responsibilities are. There's a drone law journal. have no idea whether it's any good or not, but um, I think that there's clearly going to be a body of law on drones coming up soon, so it's good to know about that. Um, And then there's a website out there that looks like it's in conjunction with the FAA along with some um, hobbyist groups and groups that are interested in drones. It's called knowbeforeyoufly.org, which I think is probably more practical explanations and more practical information than just the regulations. So uh, take the time, again, if indeed the duty of technology competence uh, extends to understanding drones, don't just go buy the tool, learn how to use it and make sure you know what your responsibilities are under it. Yeah, I would say that I also think that at least going to a drone event, if not going to some drone club meeting, would be great, uh, you know, because I, I think you do need to consider some of these things can be extremely noisy in your fantasy of just flying it out in your backyard while you, you know, sip a drink in the evening uh, on your patio may not be what your neighbors think is as cool as, as you do. So so noise, other issues, and then your just the sheer ability to control and then you, you know, these things do crash. So understanding what you need for replacement parts and how not to spend money on a uh, drone and then crash it and, and be crying because you don't, you can't fly it anymore. Or if, so it's you, you're spending enough that you'll be crying rather than your kids. The other thing is that if you do have kids, you can use them as the, uh, the test bed for this. All right, before we uh, drone on any more on this subject, let's, uh, let's move on to our next segment. But before we do that, let's uh, take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. 
Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We've got another audience question via LinkedIn this time from a listener who would like to stay anonymous. And it's not Tom and it's not me. Uh, once you hear the questions, you'll probably understand why this listener is a little wary about revealing personal details, but they have some great questions. So let's go to the questions and here they are. What technologies make working from home easier why are law firms generally resistant to staff working from home, and sometimes the lawyers as well? Do you think firms may lose out on talent, especially for IT positions, because they don't embrace working from home? Tom, you get to answer first. So I'm going to kind of answer those in reverse order, the last one that you answered. I'm not going to actually answer it. I'm going to be, and maybe I don't know enough about the person asking the question, but I would be surprised that there are a lot of IT positions that are available to work from home in the first place. I, I think that, that you know, IT to a certain extent is a hands-on job that requires some level of in-person presence. Now, granted, if we're moving all to the cloud, if we're working with tools that are not even on the premises, of the law firm, I, I think clearly then that argues for that. But uh, maybe I'm behind on all that and I, I don't just don't understand kind of how that would work. That said, you know, to the extent law firms are resistant to letting staff work from home, I'd speculate going beyond, I guess, IT positions, I'd speculate for the other positions in the firm that one reason at least is that law firms are slower to embrace all innovation. <laughs> and and working from home is an innovation in terms of working environment, uh, whether it's technology or it's a more productive workplace. Uh, I also think that because the law is inherently a collaborative profession, I've always thought that it makes more sense and it seems to be more productive and fruitful to have people working together than apart. Of course, I think that depends on the type of law that you practice. So if you're a document reviewer, you don't have to be around a lot of people to successfully review documents. So I get that there are some areas of the law where working at home might make sense, but I, I sort of would argue that having a more collegial atmosphere tends for a more successful firm than having people working at home all the time. But let's talk about real quick about technology. Technologies that make working from home easier, and I'm just going to really talk about four things that are, to me, the basics and the most obvious. Clearly, the cloud is the first thing, whether it's public cloud or private cloud. There, there's got to be a way to access your documents in a place where everybody's got access as well. So there's got you can't just have a have a silo of your own. You've got to be able to get to everything that the people who are at the office are also accessing. That means you've got to have good internet. Now whether you provide that or your office helps provide that, that's another question. But I think good internet is definitely a requirement. I think a good chat or instant message or video conferencing program because even though you're working at home, 
I personally think it's hard to be cut off like that. Um, I'd want to have easy, quick access to my colleagues. And I think instant message for me is generally fine. I can ask a quick question rather than we'll stop by next door and ask that question. Um, but it, it may depend on how you prefer to communicate with folks at work. I, I think then also other collaboration tools that enable sharing of activities, because that's the one thing that you don't get by working at home is you don't get to collaborate or work with others as often. And so, you know, whether it's a task manager that you all keep a shared task or project planning list on, you know, Slack for communications or some similar tool to manage communications, just something that enables you to still get work done with the people that you're working with so that being at home allows you to have the flexibility that you may need or that you may prefer, um, but it also keeps you a productive member of the firm. That's kind of what I'm thinking yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. I, I sort of see this, uh, the resistance in law firms to working from home as one of the, the negative aspects of the billable hour culture. So I think when you divide time into these, you know, six minute, uh, you know, or tenth of an hour segments, you, you're really back in a, an older industrial model where you need to see people working. And then, I, you know, lawyers tend to be control freaks. They tend to be suspicious of, you know, other people not working as hard as they think they do. And so, so I think all those things combine in a really negative way so that the emphasis is more on time rather than and results. And then there's certain aspects of time, like the commute, that doesn't get valued because it's not, not billable. And so you may have people who can be extraordinarily productive from home, create great work, uh, but somebody is going to say, I'm not, because I don't see them, I don't know that they're working. Or if they're home, they're probably doing, you know, they're watching TV or they're doing something terrible. So I, I think that it's, when you focus on time rather than output, I think that creates some of the, the resistance. So I do think you're losing, you're losing talent. And uh, I was just talking to somebody the other day in a, a legal tech company who was delighted to have somebody who said they wanted to come into the office only two days a week. And they were like, they could have worked from home every day. We just needed that talent. And that seemed a totally acceptable trade-off. I think you see a lot less of that in law firms, but maybe some loosening of that coming up, especially as you know, law firms are paying uh, high real estate prices for office space. You know, there are some incentives to allow people to work from home. But I, I think you nailed the technologies. Um, and, and I would also add just the, the impact of tablets and mobile devices also play a role. And then the movement away, you know, to laptops from desktops, you know, has, has definitely made a change to that. But I think you hit the, the big software and services. So I think it's an interesting question, one that kind of people go back and forth on, but I think that many law firms are exceptionally conservative in their approach. Now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I'd like to point you to an article from The Verge, which is one of my favorite technology sites. It's called Two-Factor Authentication is a Mess, and it takes as its premise the fact that uh, all these uh, websites and services have rushed out uh, in response to the cry that, you, oh my gosh, you've got to, you've got to enable two-factor authentication. Your site isn't secure without two-factor authentication, and now so many have done it, but they've done it 
all in different and inconsistent ways. And um, hackers are finding ways around it. And uh, it is not the be-all and the end-all that we thought it would be. It's still, in many ways, the best that we have, but we've got to make sure that we're doing it right. I think it's a great article to understand some of the weaknesses around it. It gives you um, options on what they think are the best two-factor authentication is the physical token. You know, the YubiKey USB drive is a great two-factor authentication drive. The next best is to have the, the app on your phone, the Google Authenticator or Authy, like we've talked about before. The absolute worst method of two-factor authentication is using SMS tools because it's been demonstrated that uh, hackers can get into your carrier and uh, can actually get to your text messages fairly simply uh, because the carriers are not doing a lot to uh, lock those types of things down. It's a great read. It's very enlightening and interesting. And I'm, I'm really interested to see where two-factor authentication goes from here. And this is a timely article because when I saw that you had it listed, I was immediately thought of the uncanny knack Gmail has of asking me for the authentication, the multi-factor authentication, when I've left my phone with the Authenticator app in the other room. <laughs> uh, so, you know, multi-factor is a bit of a pain, but it, it definitely has its benefits. So my parting shot is uh, my favorite aspect of LinkedIn these days, which is the people you may know feature in LinkedIn. So if you haven't used it, I totally recommend that you you start to play with it. And I've done all kinds of science experiments with this, but LinkedIn will do this thing where based on the connections you already have, it's going to use its algorithms developed over the last 14 years to suggest people that maybe you know and should connect to. And it's a long list and it's fascinating in, in many ways because it suggests people that Maybe you already know, people you should know, people who have a lot of connections in common. And it, it's it's really interesting to see how you can build out a network using that uh, and to, to pull people in that you hadn't thought about. Um, and if you want to grow your network in LinkedIn, it's, it's a great way to do it. It's also an interesting way to test what LinkedIn thinks of your network. So I was uh, working with a colleague of mine who wanted to grow his LinkedIn connections to a thousand. And I said, you need to use people you may know. And I was struck by the number of internal connections that LinkedIn uh, recommended, and he wanted to get more external connections. And so as we waded through all the internal ones to get to external ones, he came up with a lot of high-quality connections and added 47 great connections in one day uh, just by using this feature. And then I think the other thing is that it's interesting to see who it suggests might be connected to you. So if it's not lawyers and other people, it can give you some feedback on the LinkedIn network that you've built. So people you may know, definitely worth uh, taking a look at and experimenting with. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, provide 
content for our B segment. Uh, we'd love it if you reached out to us on LinkedIn. Just do a search for either one of us there. And uh, we now have Dennis and Tom's Tech Questions hotline through the Legal Talk Network. If you just dial 720-441-6820, that's 720-441-6820, ask your question. We will play it live. No, I mean not live. We'll play it during our podcast and we'll answer the question in our B segment. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.